we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy. My name is Mark Krikorian. I'm the Executive Director of the Center for Immigration Studies. And this week's episode is going to be the audio of the presentations from a panel discussion we did recently. The panel was convened to release a new database that we have published, a database of national security vetting failures. You'll hear the explanation on the presentations of the three speakers, but basically what it is is using publicly available information to identify examples of people who should not have been let in and who realistically could have been identified if we did a better job at vetting. The author of the database, and there's a paper that goes with it as well, is Todd Benzman, the Senior National Security Fellow here at the Center for Immigration Studies and a former counterterrorism intelligence practitioner at the Texas Department of Public Safety. And he will be followed by Philip Linderman, who is a 30-year veteran, a retired Foreign Service officer who was in the State Department for 30 years and dealt with a variety of issues, including things like visa fraud and watch listing, the kind of issues that the State Department deals with in vetting people applying for visas. Robert Law is the third speaker. He is the director of the Center for Homeland Security and Immigration at the America First Policy Institute. And he was in leadership positions for four years at USCIS, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, which is the other major agency responsible for vetting people, in this case, people applying for green cards and citizenship and what have you. So he'll be talking about what USCIS's role is in screening foreign visa applicants. So now we're going to go to Todd Benzman. We're here for three reasons today. For one thing, America is prone to forgetfulness. We have a short attention span after the media goes home. And when we have a national security problem, we tend to just kind of move on and not really know whether it was fixed or demand that it was fixed. Two, for economic health and strong relationships with the rest of the world, America depends on a steady transnational flow of people in and out of the country, coming and going with their ideas and their goods and services and business etc. The need for corridors in and out of America has to be balanced, though, with the need for national security. And it's this constant kind of tension between our economic needs and our, you know, need to be safe. Which leads us to the third reason why we're here today, which is that maybe we're too often tolerant of not finding that balance. 
even 20 years, more than 20 years after the 9-11 attacks sparked a whole of government reformation in the way it vets foreigners who use our admittance processes to enter. So short attention span, forgetfulness, human error, faulty processes, and the vast volumes of immigrant and non-immigrant visitors that we want still allows the entry of people who mean to do us harm, of foreign terrorists who are coming in hoping to kill us, but could have been found out, of human rights violators who are hoping to beat justice for their terrible atrocities and hide among us, but could have been detected, and of spies hoping to steal our brightest innovations who defeat immigration security vetting systems but who reasonably could have been found out ahead of time, and of violent criminals. And so despite these great strides that we've made since 9-11 to reform our systems, the Center for Immigration Study publishes a database of immigration security vetting failures today. Its purpose is to force remembrance of these continuing instances so we don't forget It's not as easy to forget if it's in public like this. And this is for far too many terrorists, spies, and other threats who come in from abroad using our systems and defeating our vetting processes that we put in place after 9-11. Another purpose of the database is to pinpoint where the failure was and which agency was responsible and let that stand in front of the public to remind the nation's vetting system repairmen and women that even after the reporters go home, if any ever bothered to arrive in the first place, that these failures still must be discussed, debated, and solutions implemented, and then reported to us. 22 years have passed since the 9-11 attacks caused the U.S. national security apparatus and federal agencies responsible for providing this protection to reform the whole immigration security vetting system from top to bottom. Our security enterprise put its shoulder and back into this, and they made great progress over these years. And they did make it harder for terrorists to defraud the ways into America on bogus visas and lies. But we keep experiencing laps after laps that tell us this tough work is not complete. Let me give you an example from recently. Consider Malik Faisal Akram, who is in this database. It was Akram who, in December 2021, flew into America, and then the next month, January 2022, just a little more than a year ago, staged a kidnapping hostage-taking attack on a Colleyville, Texas synagogue in the Dallas area during Friday night religious services. He pulled his gun, claimed he had an explosives belt, and then demanded that he would kill them unless the Biden government released an an infamous convicted terrorist who was being held in a federal prison nearby in Fort Worth. After a long standoff, the hostages got away, and Malik Akram died when FBI agents stormed his redoubt. Akram had been on the British MI5 intelligence service radar for a long time as a problematic threat with a long history of sympathy for jihadist ideology. He'd openly praised the 9-11 attacks right after they happened. He served one spell behind bars when a British imam reported him for concerning behavior, disrupting Friday night prayer services. 
He was a frequent visitor to Pakistan with connections to the controversial Islamic sect Tablighi Jamaat. And after a 2012 conviction for theft, he reportedly conducted himself in an extreme manner while attending the jail's mosque. And one observer noted that he was obsessed with Islam. He was twice referred to the counterterrorism prevention program, the last time as recently as 2019. So how could someone so known to British intelligence of having this kind of background just fly into America at will this late into the reforms after 9-11 and conduct an attack like this a week or two later? Well, the probable answers can be exhumed based on what's in the public record. Akram entered the U.S. in accordance with a fast-track visa waiver travel system between Great Britain and 40 countries in the United States. You can basically go on this thing. It's called the Electronic System for Travel Authorization in a matter of minutes. Put your name, enter your, maybe pay a fee. It's all online. And uh, get a, a trip to the U.S. out of this without having to have a visa or go through that process. But this requires that travelers pass a criminal background check. And the Department of Homeland Security also conducts paperless electronic checks of those national security databases. But the British had taken Akram off their watch list. So there was nothing for the Americans to find if they ran his name and information through it. But Akram also had a disqualifying or at least delaying British criminal history. So this was uh, really available for database checks. It should have flagged. We don't know really why his criminal history didn't flag. If it would have flagged, we would have probably found the extremism aspect of his background, but we did not. He had a lot of criminal history, theft, harassment, etc., but it just didn't happen. This was detectable criminal history, and he was able to breach two sets of borders, and the result was a terrifying 10-hour ordeal for innocent worshipers before he was uh, neutralized, shall we say. So how often does this happen, and what should we do about it? Those questions are left unanswered. The DHS said that they were going to investigate, but we have heard nothing about what they did or didn't do since this terrible act happened. So now let me tell you a little bit about the database. It's seated right now at the moment at 47 instances of avoidable, unnecessary security vetting failure. The database reflects a more diverse range of human threat. It's not just about terrorism. If it uh, impacts on our national interests or our national security or public safety, it goes into the database if we can. In it are spies, warlords, and to date, one uh, child rapist. The center's intention is to grow this database. We'll add to it as necessary and when there's sufficient information to, to be able to do so. We are asking for public and government officials to contact us confidentially with information that may not be included in this database or new cases that we missed. Each failure case lays bare one or more likely repairable defects in the array of security screening policies and systems across government agencies, but two agencies that process the vast bulk of all non-immigrant and immigrant benefit applications 
are responsible for most of the failures that we have in this database. One is the Department of State's Office of Consular Affairs, responsible for various kinds of temporary visas that are supposed to be vetted overseas. We have Mr. Phil Linderman here to uh, help us understand that with long experience, 30 years in the State Department to provide more information. The other is the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services for refugees overseas, citizenship, lawful permanent residency, and plenty of other duties as well. For that, we have Rob Law here who has worked in USCIS during the last administration and is up to date on a lot of this. But other agencies bear responsibility, such as the Department of Defense, and in one case, the ICE Office of the Principal Legal Advisor, who is involved in asylum processes. The database is designed to be user-friendly and searchable. A cornerstone feature of the database when you go in there are analytical narratives that encapsulate the findings or likely fail points in the systems and processes. The database is searchable by name, uh, nation, responsible agency, provides a sense of how long a suspect was in the country before detection, and that's as a way to frame how long the threat was able to persist before we discovered it and neutralized it. For transparency, visitors and researchers and anybody who goes on this thing will have access to all of the primary research materials that were used in the analyses. You'll find court records, you'll find media reports, government reports are all in there. We want this to be transparent. What visitors will find is how agencies failed in each case, what kind of visas or applications were typically involved, what species of criminality or threat was involved. And just to give you a couple of examples of what, what is in this is that um, we know that in the cases that we have so far, we will add to this, that 32 of the cases had at least one failure identified, avoidable failure in our opinion, 10 cases with at least two failures, and five cases in which there were three failures. And there's debate internally about whether some of them might have gone as high as seven or eight failures, but we're playing it conservative here. The most frequent visas or immigration benefit types where the failures occurred were lawful permanent residence applications, change of status, refugee applications. There were 22 of those. Refugee applications, there were 19 of those. Temporary visas of various types, 17 of those. And naturalized citizenship, 15 of those. There is supposed to be security vetting going on for all of these. Of all the time between entry and discovery, the average for all of them is about five years and eight months. That's a little skewed by the uh, war criminals who tended to uh, be able to be inside the United States for really long times before they were finally outed and removed. Most of these are going to be terrorism-related cases. Those are an average of five years. Human rights cases, again, 19 years on average. And espionage-related cases, three years and five months on average. Yeah, I did want to note one thing, that in recent years, especially during the Trump administration, we heard a lot about extreme vetting. I put air quotes around those. We don't refer to that as extreme vetting. But the administration, the Trump administration, did put in place by executive proclamation the National Vetting Center. That vetting center is still a going enterprise. 
The Biden administration came in, as we know, and reversed a great many of the prior administration's initiatives. But in this case, commendably, the administration maintained the National Vetting Center. It is still expanding. I report on what it's doing in the paper that's surrounding the database. And we can talk more about what they are doing, but but the work that they are doing all moves toward improvement of vetting by bringing together more database, classified database systems into one room and adding more kinds of visas to run checks through that and more kinds of immigration benefits and names through that. And now, Phil Linderman. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate the invitation to talk about a very important topic. The database, I know it's a start. It's an important tool for policymakers and for the public to be aware about these cases and uh, their impact on our national security. When I was in government, I was in the Consular Affairs Bureau for much of my time in the State Department. We, in fact, did war game cases like this in training sessions in our own process of reviewing that, particularly after 9-11, how secure and effective our visa security procedures actually were. And it's an imperfect process, but what, what this database shows and what our experience shows, one is the power of watch listing, particularly biometrics. These cases, we'll talk about a couple of them in, in my period here, the effect of a, a name that was captured as they say in the trade, a known or suspected terrorist, a KST, and that, that identity was captured and watch-listed with biometrics as a very effective tool. We'll see why it failed here in a couple of the cases, but that I want to highlight. For government policymakers, there's always controversy about watch-listing, how it's done. Sometimes it's overly zealous, but when we can create effective watch-listing records Based on biometrics, we have an incredibly valuable tool in national security. The second tool, a very important tool, is simply interviewing and having contact with, in the case of the State Department, visa applicants. That's why we place people in forward positions in consular sections and embassies and consulates abroad. That's why we typically interview all the applicants. It is unrecorded and unknowable, frankly, how many potentially nefarious foreign applicants who wanted to get a visa and were turned down, not because we caught them with our watch listing information, because they were unknown to us, and not, frankly, even because we identified them when we interviewed them, but we found that their story didn't make sense, that there was uh, gaps in the story, and the consular officer who did the interview under our visa law had the authority simply to turn them down, not because they had hard information that he may have been a KST or a criminal or whatever, simply because the story didn't make sense. The value of this interviewing contact with, with applicants is huge. Unfortunately, right now, State Department is besieged worldwide because of the COVID pandemic with massive backlogs. It is important, nevertheless, I suggest to colleagues that we take the time to still do the interviewing, to live with the backlogs, because it, it goes to the question of one of the the pillars in our security, which is to talk to people, find out why they're coming to the country. You know, during the Obama administration, there was Executive Order 
13597, which, among other things, commanded that consular sections abroad manage and complete the visa process and application screening, interviewing within three weeks. This was done, pressure from the tourism industry, the universities, higher education, et cetera, all the, all the forces, political special interests in the United States who want fast and quick visa issuances. It's important for the White House to push back against that. The Obama executive order created an artificial timeline to hurry the processing of visas. That was, in my judgment, unwise. The current administration has not done that, replicated that, simply because the backlogs are too vast in uh, non-immigrant visa processing worldwide for it to do it. But this administration has, has been unprecedented in some of the steps it has taken in the context of opening our borders. Again, keep in mind those two principles of effective visa security, travel security. Our system is multi-layered, and we'll go into a couple of cases to show how it worked. From the database, there's a case of a Saudi national, Alphalaj is his name. He, in 2011, received an F-2 visa. He was accompanying his spouse, who received the principal F-1 student visa to study in the United States. Now, in 2011, set the scenario, 10 years post 9-11, you would have had in, in Riyadh not only the original visa interview by State Department, and we keep people in, in these countries, they know the language, the culture, so they have some idea of the dynamics. You have a Saudi man going with his wife, keep in mind that, that society, to be second fiddle, in, perhaps, in, in one interpretation, for years as his wife studied. I am sure that that scenario would have been scrubbed in an interview. But nevertheless, Al-Falaj was successful. He got his visa. After 9-11, the law put in place in many overseas embassies and consulates the so-called visa security program, visa security units. It's a DHS program in which DHS stations security specialists to work on security travel in foreign embassies. They would have seen this file as well they would have approved it and let it go through. There's two failures there. Then this, this individual travels to Oklahoma where his wife was a student. He does whatever he does for several years. He's off our radar apparently, but he does travel back and forth. CBP would have seen him in at least two entry points. One, when he first went into the United States, and secondly, when he came back. The record's incomplete, but I suspect he traveled multiple times. He would have been fingerprinted in all of these instances. All visa applicants go through and give fingerprints and a photograph for facial recognition reviews, etc. So you've had multiple failures. In 2016, this individual decides he wants to enroll in a flight training school in Oklahoma. This is right out of the playbook that Mohammed Atta used the ringleader of the 9-11 plot. Uh, and in fact, after that, the U.S. government established something that was called the Alien Flight Student Program run by TSA. So this individual had to be printed again and approved for this, this flight training program. Never mind that he's not on the right visa. He's on an F-2 visa. It doesn't give him permission to go and study like this, but apparently that was not a trigger. 
We don't get anything out of those prints. It's only later, in the, a year later, after Alphalage has completed his flight training program, this guy had a pilot's license, that somehow he pings with a hit on a review of his prints, and he suddenly is known to us as someone with a record. And in fact, it's a very serious record. His prints came to us from an operation in Afghanistan, in Kandahar, where latent prints were found on documents. But 15 years later, those documents were cleaned up, those prints were found, they were integrated into the system, and we were able to identify this guy before he got into an airplane and did any kind of damage in our country. You see multiple failures there, but what it says again is the power of biometric watch listing. This guy was clever enough in, in all of his interviews and interactions with American officials to get through and uh, and not be pulled out as a suspect. And Phil, if you, in, in case you, you, you might plan to note this, but the fingerprints were found in the same training camps that all of the Al-Qaeda operatives who did 9-11, or some of them, <clears throat> trained in at the same time that they trained in the year 2000. Correct. I mean, from the record that we have, and we have a, an affidavit from the FBI JTTF agent who followed this case. Now, he put together the case based on the prints. Apparently, in the business of prints, you have to clean up latent prints, get them into the system. This would have been the FBI fingerprint database, presumably. It's routinely pinged for all visa travelers and all LPR and other asylum cases that come to the USCIS. But if we don't have the prints in the system, we're not going to get a match. It goes to the question, since 9-11, FBI, DHS, even DOD have set up a biometric center in West Virginia so that they can move rapidly on cleaning up prints. But this case took apparently 15 years. It goes again to the issue of how it is difficult sometimes to detect a traveler who has nefarious plans against us. Take the example of going back to Muhammad Atta in the 9-11 scenario or even this fellow Al-Falaj they were capable enough to go through multiple layers, multiple travel points, multiple encounter points, and uh, to apparently hide their intentions. They did catch him in the end, yeah, uh, plotting. They, yeah. To so to finish the story, how do we catch him? Presumably, the prints are run regularly against the database holdings of all travelers and visa and visa persons, and in this case, the flight school applicants to the TSA program. In one of those routine runnings, this guy's prints which had been ingested into the system probably in 2016 or 17, after the flight school, after the visa, after the travel, then they come up. The FBI pursues the case with the JTTF team in that part of the country in Oklahoma, and they do their own investigation. They go back to his original visa application, and they find a telephone number that also shows up in the material that was confiscated by the U.S. military, military in Kandahar. So he had a telephone number. At the Al-Qaeda training camp. At the Al-Qaeda training camp. So this guy was very much invested into an Al-Qaeda scenario. Whether he, in fact, harbored intentions to do us harm, the circumstantial evidence is hugely against him. In any event, he should not have had a visa, and he should not have been permitted to travel multiple times into the United States and out. A similar case, if I have a time for it, a look in the record on the case of Mohammed Massoud. Here you have an H-1B visa holder. He went to work in the, in the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. This guy 
very clearly held back his intentions through interviews again, just like Alphalage. He only becomes known to us when apparently, according to the record, he was using social media in an encrypted form and revealed his terrorist intentions. Again, the JTTF was there. They investigated. They found out. You can find this guy's information on LinkedIn. He had studied in, at Cambridge University in the UK. He had traveled internationally multiple times. He had been selected for the very, the very rigorous Mayo Clinic program, and he still harbored terrorist intent. And we were only able to find this guy with the use of social media and follow-up enforcement in the United States. The, the lessons are very clear about the power of, of watch listing to help inform our encounters. And he was, he was plotting to, um, to attack fellow doctors at the Mayo Clinic for a time. And then he decided to go overseas, and he tried to go overseas to join the jihad to patch up the wounded in the battlefield. Yeah, he, he, there's no doubt that uh, Masood was a determined terrorist. It is less clear about Al-Falage, but both cases are examples of individuals that we want our border screening to keep out of the country. And finally, Robert Law. Todd, I want to congratulate you on this database. It's unfortunate that a, a vetting failures database needed to even be created, but you've done commendable work identifying numerous instances where terrorists, bad actors, and fraudsters were able to obtain U.S. immigration benefits that they should not have received. As was previously mentioned, I had the distinct honor of holding several leadership positions at U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services during the Trump administration, which is the part of the Department of Homeland Security that administers the nation's lawful immigration system, including naturalization, adjustment of status to lawful permanent resident or green card status, a number of temporary guest worker programs, asylum, and refugee status. Some of these benefits go with an in-person interview. Others are just based off of the paper application or petition. This is also the agency that pursued a, a biometrics regulation that unfortunately was not finalized before the change of administrations that if it had gone into effect would have empowered all aspects of the Department of Homeland Security, including CBP and ICE uh, to utilize and modernize all forms of biographic and biometric information for screening and vetting, uh, a useful tool that unfortunately didn't make it across the finish line. This panel could not be timelier. Earlier this month marked the 20th anniversary of the creation of DHS. Congress created DHS in response to the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks that killed nearly 3,000 Americans in New York City, Virginia, and Pennsylvania. While 9-11 is often thought of as an intelligence failure, and it was, it was also an immigration failure. As the executive summary of the 9-11 Commission's report put it, quote, the 9-11 attacks were a shock, but they should not have come as a surprise. Another quote from the executive summary is, and more precisely, protecting borders was not a national security issue before 9-11. For example, the 9-11 hijackers used passports that were fraudulently manipulated or contained indicators of extremism. They made detectable false statements on visa applications and to border agents to be allowed into the country, and they violated U.S. immigration laws while in the country. As the focus of today's panel demonstrates, the U.S. government remains plagued by the same screening and vetting failures that allowed 19 terrorists into our country 21 years ago to execute their deadly scheme. 
An illustrative example from Todd's report is the case of El Mehdi Semlahi Fathi. This Moroccan-born foreign national was allowed into the U.S. in 2007 on an F-1 student visa, but he failed out of college after just one semester. Instead of departing the country, he remained here unlawfully. Two years later, he was arrested for trespassing, transferred over to Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE, custody, and put into removal proceedings. Now, of course, the fact that I'm mentioning him here today means that the story did not end with a prompt deportation in 2009. That's because he claimed that if he were returned to Morocco, he would be persecuted by the Moroccan government due to his student activist activities. Fathi was released from detention by an immigration judge in order to apply for asylum. While it's unclear when he was radicalized, if that was something that should have been detected at the student visa process time or at some point after that, the asylum claim was completely bogus, and it bought him the time that he needed to plot bombing attacks on federal buildings in the United States. Evidence of this fraud should have been detected, but he was still nonetheless granted asylum in 2013, putting him on an expedited path to U.S. citizenship. Fortunately, a separate FBI investigation resulted in his capture prior to his bombing plots materializing. In 2014, he pled guilty to perjury on his asylum application after the FBI, and not DHS, exposed the asylum fraud by, as one example, comparing the inconsistencies between his student visa application and his asylum application. In fact, the FBI even caught him on a recording bragging to someone about his fraudulent asylum application and it being approved. Just briefly, I will touch on another vetting failure that came from 2007 involving a Somali who was living in a Kenyan camp and seeking refugee status in the United States. What viewers may not know is that the primary vetting of refugees is conducted by the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, or UNHCR. USCIS refugee officers then interview applicants who have passed the UNHCR screening. In this case, the foreign national lied about his tribal affiliation, essentially saying that he was from one part of Somalia and was with one particular clan and not the clan that he was actually a part of, and doing so concealed or attempted to conceal that he was connected to a U.S.-designated foreign terrorist organization. The fraud went undetected. He was granted refugee status and resettled in the United States in 2008, where he almost immediately began conspiring with terrorist organizations. A year later, the fraud was missed again when he was granted lawful permanent resident status. It wasn't until 2014 when an FBI counterterrorism investigation uncovered his ties to al-Shabaab and his immigration fraud. A federal judge sentenced him to 15 years in prison for the fraud and for supporting terrorism. I chose to highlight these two cases because there are parallels to current Biden administration policies that are increasing the likelihood of more bad actors slipping through the cracks. In the first case, the alien filed a fraudulent asylum claim in order to delay his removal from the U.S. This, of course, is the very tactic that is being exploited by illegal aliens today that are apprehended at the southern border. When policies allow aliens to remain here for years, and not be held in detention facilities for merely using buzzwords like asylum or credible fear, it incentivizes fraudulent, frivolous, and otherwise non-meritorious claims. Some are doing it for economic reasons, but there are also bad actors 
in that pile as well. This in turn overwhelms the system in the development of so-called backlogs. As pressure comes down from the top to clear these backlogs, and that's whether we're talking about asylum or lawful immigration benefits, adjudicators are pressured and put under unrealistic quotas to hit. This incentivizes more approvals because these are less burdensome outcomes than denials, which require the creation of a separate memo explaining why the benefit is being denied. The second case is interesting for several reasons. First, it was my impression from my time at USCIS that the, the Refugee Corps uh, was too reliant on UNHCR, too deferential. Now, while UNHCR does play a helpful role in rooting out some meritless and ineligible claims, at the end of the day, a non-governmental entity should not be the leader of the screening and vetting for any population that is being allowed into the United States. Additionally, this case involved a foreign national from a failed state, in this case, Somalia. This makes any document inherently more difficult to verify and identities easy to mask. The locking in of his bogus background is similar to what we are currently dealing with as a result of the Biden administration's unlawful Operation Allies Welcome parole program, which allowed around 100,000 unvetted and visaless Afghans into the U.S. after the Bosch withdrawal from Kabul. Scathing OIG reports from both the Department of Defense and DHS have found that the Biden administration ordered federal employees to accept at face value any story that these Afghan nationals were telling them. For example, there are a disproportionate number of them who have a January 1st birthday because that was the date that they were told to put into the systems, the federal government identity systems, if no other date was provided. Briefly returning to the 9-11 Commission's report, it stated very concisely, the nation was unprepared. Sadly and concerningly, we seem to have reverted to a September 10th, 2001 mindset. The adjudicators that I met with at USCIS want to get each case right. The failures materialize from expansionist immigration policies that create unreasonable workloads and unfair expectations to adjudicate quickly. I would argue that it is far better from a national security and immigration integrity standpoint for the adjudicators to be empowered to take the time they need to feel 100% confident in each outcome. For purposes of brevity, since this is a podcast, we did not include the question and answer portion of it, of the discussion, but you can view the whole thing on our website at cis.org. The video of the whole panel discussion is there. And also the database itself, which is uh, anybody can explore. We encourage you to do that. If you're a member of the government who has a familiarity with a case that maybe should be added to the database, because this is going to be a living document, as they say, unfortunately, as future failures happen, email us at center at cis.org. To be clear, the database is based on all publicly available information court information, media reports, that sort of thing. This is not, we're not asking people to leak classified information to us. That's one of the limitations, of course, of the database, that it's all based on publicly available information. But it is an important tool, nonetheless, to highlight the importance of learning from our mistakes, because the point of the database is not to blame people or to you know, make fun of how incompetent somebody is. Rather, the point of it is to highlight points of failure 
that have actually happened in the past so that our government, whether it's State Department or USCIS or other agencies, can hopefully try to prevent future failures of the kind we have outlined in the database, the National Security Vetting Failures database. That's it for this week's episode of Parsing Immigration Policy. This is Mark Krikorian, Director of the Center. I want to thank again our producer, Brian Griffith, and I hope you all will tune in next week.